To the film's credit, in terms of the direction, the cinematography and so on, the film is smart that way. I mean, visually, there's a strategy to engage the viewer. You don't, even though it is really stagey, you don't feel like the camera's just sitting there planted in cement and just showing the action as it would be on a proscenium stage. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk mostly about the film out of theaters right now, The Outfit, but also some stuff that's been released at the Charles, which is your local theater, Mike, and what I saw at the French Film Festival in Richmond this past weekend. But let's start off with The Outfit, which is a Mark Rylance vehicle. And I can't tell you how much I love this actor, Mike, just the expressiveness in his face. I knew the minute I saw the preview that I was going to have to see this movie as soon as possible. And it's about a guy who is a tailor and his customers are members of the mob and this one fateful evening. And one thing I really, really enjoyed about it just as a story effect is the whole tailoring aspect of it. It was a little bit of, you know, Project Runway meets the mob. But Mike, where do you want to start with this movie? I'll start by saying what I think this tailor would say to you, that he's not a tailor, he's a cutter. <laughs> and you, having seen the film, we, it's, it's a joke yes. that you'll recognize. But the, the point is, like, he is so serious about his profession that he had worked on Savile Row in, in London, and he had all this training. Uh, you know, I, I will always still call him a tailor, but, but the fact that he makes that distinction and explains it, that he was a cutter. And each of his customers, he frets over because it's like, you know, is this a suitable outfit, a suitable suit for this person? And oftentimes when he's talking, he's working as he talks. And I, I'm reminded actually to make a very quick comparison with something like Daniel Day-Lewis and Phantom Thread, where you have somebody who's, whose hands are constantly working the, the cloth, you know, sewing, stitching, all, all those things. But how that's a very quiet and kind of contemplative thing. Sometimes in doing that work, as he's doing it, he'll be musing, talking aloud, and how other characters can kind of take him for granted. Well, that's just my tailor, you know, and, and so they'll say things and do things around him like somehow he weren't there. And, and we're not, this is a story where we have to be very careful not to spoil anything. And there's so much we could spoil, but just simply that this is somebody who's just working very quietly in the room. He's a tailor. And, and people kind of take him for granted like he's not there. And one reason why it's so compelling is just simply that Mark Rylance is a very quiet, understated actor. And so whether he's talking or not, you're with him. In other words, like you as a viewer, you're kind of pulled in. You're watching his facial expressions that way, even when he's not doing anything seemingly. I always think of Mark Rylance from Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, which is, I think, a really underrated Spielberg film. But he's so, so strong in that film. And so I bring that positive association with me. In this one where he's playing the tailor, again, because of his pride in the profession, he was in London. And people ask him, well, why did you move from London to Chicago of all places? And this is a period piece, 1956. And so he explains it as in the post-war period that, you know, like when blue jeans came in, you know, everyone wanted to wear American blue jeans. They don't want fine tailoring anymore and so on. Now, we'll have reason to question that as his stated reason for moving from United Kingdom to United States. 
but as offered as an explanation that he wanted to resettle, go somewhere else. So again, one of the ironies, sort of smile-inducing ironies is, but of all the places to go, you go to Chicago, which is still, it still seems like Al Capone territory as it's presented in this film. And you set up in a neighborhood where your customers, your best customers who can really afford to, your services, they're mobsters. And they always feel like they can come in and actually sort of like drop envelopes in a box and have conversations and you're somehow quietly in the background. So that's sort of the setup here that he's playing this relocated tailor slash cutter. He's in Chicago and the story that unfolds from there. Now, Marie, what can we safely say about it without giving away much of anything. I, I feel sort of stymied here in, in that there's so much I want to say about the film, but the story truly is, I know this is sort of a, a kind of standard line, but it's truly is one you need to discover in terms of what's really going on here. So I'm going to kick the can, and not just down the road, but but to your screen, actually, and have you address this. What do you think? Okay, can accepted. What I want to ask you is whether you feel this character is too much like his character in Bridge of Spies, that it stereotypes him. Because there's something about Mark Rylance that where he does that sort of hangdog thing, where he looks like he's in the background, but he's completely aware of everything going on, storing everything up. And in Bridge of Spies, were a couple of moments where he was prodded to, you know, could you act more guilty or could you do this or the other thing? And he said, would it help? In this deadpan expression, which was so unintentionally, I may be hilarious in the movie, but it underscored that idea of, well, I'm just who I am, but I, I maybe could be different if, if, would it help? It kind of brings that over without using that catchphrase in this movie. There is this kind of guy in the background, nobody's noticing, but he's completely aware and seemingly non-nefarious in the same way he just seems like this nice guy caught up in this situation and recognizing it i enjoyed it in this movie because i liked him so much in bridge of spies i don't know how many times he can milk this kind of character before it seems like he's just doing you know the same thing over and over so as much as i liked it mike do you think it was a mistake or a genius move in terms of his career I think it's somewhere between mistake and genius move. Maybe that's a safe answer I'm giving, but but you, you raise a great point there. I mean, one reason why I initially liked it so much was those positive associations with Bridge of Spies. But I must admit that as the film goes on a bit, and I'm sort of at that point accustomed to what the storyline will be, the characters and so on, there are scenes in it where I feel like, well, he's doing another Mark Rylance moment. You know what I mean? There's, there's that sense to it. And it's a, a question worth raising, like, you know, looking ahead. And yours is essentially an anticipatory question, as in looking ahead, what role should he take? He could easily coast on that. And he does it so well that I wouldn't exactly complain, but there might be a sense of familiarity or being overly familiar even. So I understand the concern there and I, I share it, but in the present moment with the film we're watching, The Outfit, He's so well, I say, I hate to say so well suited, but he's, he's, so, he's, he's so, so good for this role that I was really fine with that because oftentimes a character like his here is reactive. He's so passive initially, and, and, and he just seems like so accommodating that it's it's the showy gangsters, and they come on like gangbusters, literally. These are all like almost like live action cartoons, and I say that as a, as a compliment here. These are tough guy characters, and they swagger, and they do this and that, and he's just quietly there in the room, but you know that he's noticing everything. He picks up on everything, and it helps to keep the viewer alert. Also, by the way, keeping us alert, this would be a good place to pivot a bit in terms of, even though this is a story that takes place in 
Chicago, he's the transplant from London. It's all Chicago gangland activity. The entire film takes place basically in two rooms in the shop. There's like one or two shots out to the street or from the street. The whole movie was shot on a, a London soundstage. It's really, you know, uh, deliberately claustrophobic that way. And on the one hand, it works extremely well. And it is essentially like uh, stagey as an almost like stage theater. But, but you know, it, it works extremely well because the director, the cameraman and so on, they're really clever. They're really in it. They're versatile with, with camera placement, movement, editing and so on. It never seems like you're totally without air. You know what I mean? It always seems like there's something to hold you visually and, and to your ear as well. They're really clever with moving things around and so on. That's on the one hand, that's all positive. On the other hand, there are times when it does seem a bit constricted for those very reasons. So whether it's in terms of character development, the storyline as it unfolds, there are times where it seems maybe too much of a chamber piece, too insular, and it just puts you in a certain milieu, a certain setting. And once you're there, yeah, it is interesting to see the plot twists and turns, but to me, it just it did seem, frankly, after a while, a little too tight, a little too confining. I want to get your thoughts on this, because even though I like this film, there was ultimately a kind of cold and almost analytical quality that, that I was bringing as a viewer. I wasn't particularly emotionally invested at that point. I was admiring the level of, of acting, his acting, as we've been saying, and I admired the technical cleverness of working in a, in a tight space like that. But I never felt like I was like emotionally going that next step to really caring that deeply about the characters. For me, frankly, and this is a bit of a knock against the film, they, ultimately they seem like pieces on a game board. Ah, oh, this guy's gonna double cross you. Oh, that guy, here's what he's, you know, and I, I could enjoy the gamesmanship, but that's at a sort of remove, a kind of analytical remove from the action. What was your take on that? I think you're absolutely right about that because I think this would have been, I would have enjoyed it better, everything the same as a stage play because it really unfolds very much better as a stage play. It doesn't make the most of, you know, a moving picture in terms of making it into a movie, except for Mark Rylance. He's the only character you follow with any sort of stake. And what I'd like to mention, by the way, one of the reasons why I think he's so good in this is as a sewer, everything depends on how you cut it out. If you don't cut out the fabric right, if you get anything off of, you know, precision, it cascades. So the fact that he calls himself a cutter instead of a tailor, I get what they're saying there because it's all about the cutting. But he did study tailoring to do this job. And the suit that he is wearing in the movie is one he made. So I love that he, by the way, tailoring a suit jacket is the hardest thing you can do. It is the most complicated piece you can work on. So the fact that he attempted that and then wore it he like literally embodied what you do to do that job. So I think that works for him. You never don't believe he's not really a, a tailor or a cutter. He's completely believable. And that's not really something easy to pull off. And I'm glad you mentioned Phantom Thread because I thought he was so much more believable in that role than Daniel Day-Lewis, who was also a great actor. Yeah, that's why I wanted to mention it because these are full immersion performances. You know, that, that you know, if you're if you're a tailor like that, you know, the obsessive detail, the quiet quality as well. You have to be so deliberate with the work you do. And that's why it really is a terrific role for Mark Rylance. And, and of course, as with Daniel Day-Lewis, just, you know, if, if you're going to make a suit, make a suit kind of attitude, uh, you know, they really, really put themselves into the role like that. But, you know, ultimately, even though the, the film had things I enjoyed, as, as we've been discussing, 
it did leave me kind of cold after a while. It just, I, I just felt like, and so when the big reveals came late in the action, not revealing any of them here, but when they came late in the action, I was just like, oh, okay. Well, you know, what I predicted, what I didn't, whatever. But that's, that's what I call uh, making check marks. You know, it's, it was really sort of like, what do I think of this character and that one? What did I predict and what not predict and so on? And yeah, it held my interest. But as I said earlier, not at that sort of emotional gut level, really caring about the characters, even the Mark Rowling's character, admiring the performance, but because the character himself is so diffident, so withdrawn, so quiet, that's a, that's a tricky thing, isn't it? Because as an audience member, I felt like, okay, I, I do care about him, I suppose, <laughs> but in a kind of detached way. I mean, did you share that sense of detachment? Yes, absolutely. I wanted to like it more than I did because I like him, but I don't think everything around him was not enough to carry the movie. And what I did like about his performance was what I'm thinking is is now going to be his his lot in life is you're going to play the quiet man nobody notices who's somehow pivotal to the plot. And, you know, you're going to be, a, you know, a strong acting presence. I don't know how long it'll be before, you know, he can't do that anymore. He he'll need to surprise us with with some other acting notes other than, you know, that guy in the background who who's able to always keep his calm and give you the impression with his because he's got such an expressive face so much more going on there i think one of the reasons that it didn't work as much as it could have in this is because it, this really feels like it was meant to be a play and not a movie now without spoiling anything in terms of the other characters in it we could talk about the gangsters but for the moment i want to talk about a character named Mabel. She is uh, the the tailor. I'll call him a tailor. He'll be angry with me. <laughs> <laughs> She's the tailor's employee. So his name is Leonard. Mabel works for him. She's a young woman working in a shop, and they got to wonder, well, what is she noticing? What is she seeing? And again, without spoiling anything, I think for viewers going into it, be alert to that. What's the relationship like between the two of them as to what she's picking up on? And I'll just give you one line. And she's played by the actress uh, Zoe Deutsch. But I'll give you one line of dialogue from that employee, uh, Mabel, when she says, one way or another, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> and the reason I wanted to share that line of dialogue is because it is such an insular kind of claustrophobic setting, and they're all kind of trapped in their roles, if you will. You know, he's the tailor, she's the secretary, basically. They're the gangsters. If you want to bust out, you want to break out of that, what you'd be willing to do or what you want to do and so on. And again, that doesn't spoil anything in terms of what happens, but you know from the early scenes in the film, the impulse is there, that certainly on her part to break out of that. So one reason why I wanted to alert viewers to that is as you're watching it, look for like little clues, little signals as to agendas that particular characters have. Because it's not, again, not spoiling anything that it's not all gonna be what it seems to be on the surface, right? We can safely say that. So by the time you get to the end of it, it's ah, oh, big reveal, big reveal. But far before then, you know there's an inkling that, that stuff could happen. And, and Marie, even though we're not crazy about the film, it's not compelling, doesn't that sort of hold your interest? Because you're watching it, don't you find yourself looking for those little clues along the way? And it is beautifully shot. I mean, it has a lot of things that actually go right. And because it's about a guy who is a cutter slash tailor, you know scissors are going to get in there somewhere. Mike, what I really wish is that Hitchcock could have shot this because it would have been a completely different movie but he would have known what to do with all of the things. Well, he certainly knew what to do with scissors in Dawen for Murder. Yes. And, and also also in that film, which is deliberately stagey, or in Hitchcock's film Rope, of course, as Marie knows very well, how to work within a confined space. Hitchcock loved the technical challenges. And as I was watching this film, 
I kept thinking about Hitchcock as in, if you're gonna have the whole story take place in just one or two rooms, and to the film's credit, in terms of the direction, the cinematography and so on, the film is smart that way. I mean, visually, there's a strategy to engage the viewer. You don't, even though it is really stagey, you don't feel like the camera's just sitting there planted in cement and just showing the action as it would be on a proscenium stage. You, you never really have that sense. There's, an, there's enough versatility in camera placement and movement, the editing and rhythm and so on. And I'm so glad Marie mentioned that because again, the film does have some real creativity with how it handles the telling of what, frankly, has got to be a static story. You're not going to leave those rooms, basically. Marie, let me turn it back to you on this, because it seems to me that Hitchcock connection actually may explain some of the interest of the film, because in that kind of a story, Hitchcock essentially is giving us a, a, you know, character studies. You find yourself looking for incremental details and little things, and then you'll have big reveals, but then the little clues, the little bits of information along the way that make it a surprise, but then in retrospect, at least not totally a surprise. And the hobby horse that Hitchcock would have ridden here was one of his favorite themes, which is regular guy gets pulled into some something, you know, out of his control, not within his, you know, ability to stop, change. He loved that. He loved taking a regular guy and sticking him in some terrible situation. I can totally see him working with Mark Rylance because Mark Rylance does things just with his facial expressions that he could have worked with that he could never have gotten out of Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart or any of his other leading men. Yeah, it's another example of how when you have the right actor, it's the when I spoke of nuance in the actor's face. And a lot of it is nonverbal, right, Marie? I mean, you know that how often, like with Jimmy Stewart, think about those great roles in the 1950s, you know, Rear Window and so on, or, or Vertigo and all. You think of those roles where there's oftentimes not a lot of dialogue. It's visual storytelling, and it's what you can read into the face. And so one of the virtues of this film is the fact that Rylance has that kind of a face, doesn't he? You know, and it really holds your attention. So we keep saying we're not crazy about the film, but when you have a strong actor like that, it's really easy to watch it in terms of your attention goes right to him. I wish it went more often to some of the supporting characters. And, and you know, it, you know, the secretary character, she'll give some reasons. We know a bit about her, but she's not really a fully developed character in some ways. And Marie, let me get your thoughts on this, because likewise, some of the gangster characters, we get an explanation as to uh, you know who's related to whom and what the infighting is and all. But a lot of that, for me, is sort of on a superficial level, again, just of gamesmanship, moving characters around. I thought that was one of the film's biggest drawbacks was that the female character seemed really interesting in the beginning. And then you just feel like she's used for, you know, peril effect, which I thought kind of undermined the whole idea of having her in it in the first place. You could have just taken her out completely and it really wouldn't have made that much of a difference. And, and Hitchcock would not have made that mistake. I think the mistake they made here was thinking that Mark Rylance would be able to carry the whole film and all of the associated characters really didn't buoy him up enough to carry the whole film. I could still see him getting a Best Actor nod next year, though. I mean, he was really good in it. He was really good in it, but this is a small film that's had a small audience, know I'm getting at, that in a field of actors getting nominated, he certainly would deserve the nomination. Whether he gets it or not, ironically, when I say how quiet he is in the film, the film itself is quiet in a lot of ways. I don't know. It's interesting to have you mention that because, yes, he would he would deserve it, but would, would he get the nomination? Because people may not remember this film that many months later. 
I think this is going to be one of those nominations where people are like, what? I never saw that movie. I never heard of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not a terrible movie. I mean, we, we, we've said a lot of negative things about it, but it really does have its moments. I mean, one thing I will say for the staginess of it, it's really good to look at. It's, it's beautifully rendered you know, in terms of evoking that kind of world. But let's move on, Mike, to what else is out there in the theaters and what what i saw at the um, film festival tell us about what you saw recently at the charles i've been watching a lot of films which is not surprising to hear but one film that i do want to talk about in particular because i thought it had some strength and also certainly has some i think some box office appeal to it is a film called infinite storm it stars uh, naomi watts and she's really strong in this and uh, again for some reason marie today we have these these films we pick where I can't tell you much about the story. It's just like, like, like people probably would turn out of me like, well, come on, tell me about the movie. And it's like, no, I won't. <laughs> Not that I can't, but no, I won't. But what I can tell you safely here is the basic setup, the premise here. Naomi Watts, her character is living in rural isolation or near isolation in New Hampshire. She is a, a volunteer with, but very much a worker with search and rescue missions there. So her character, and bear in mind that where she is in the state, she's like sort of on, on the, the foothills of Mount Washington. So as a quick reminder, Mount Washington is, you know, the highest peak in that part of the country, period. I mean, it's, it's just much taller than almost any other mountain around, at least by East Coast standards. <laughs> we won't talk about the West Coast, but by East Coast standards. But, but to, to our point, uh, Mount Washington is known for extremely cold temperatures, extremely high wind, extreme changes in temperature. I know from when, when I've been, not that I do a lot of mountain climbing, but when I've been up in the mountains, they would always, in the Rockies, they would always caution us. It's, it's bright and sunny today, but you know what? In 10 minutes, the weather will change. And you'll want that parka, you'll want, you'll want those winter clothes and so on. It can, it can go like that. Well, in her case, for reasons you have to discover for yourself, she decides to take a solitary hike up this mountain in mid-October. Now, let me quickly add what I should have mentioned at the outset. This is based on a true story. It's a real-life story. And you really palpably feel that as you watch it. So the character she's playing is based on a real-life woman who had that kind of occupation and, and that kind of, uh, those kinds of qualities who, for reasons you'll discover as you watch it, decides she's going to take a walk like this, even though some of her friends, like at the cafe and so on, have said, you know, the weather forecast isn't very promising. You know, I don't think today's the day to make the hike. And she has her reasons for needing to do this. And when you have an actor like Naomi Watts, you know, when, when she, meaning her character, is determined to do something, she's going to do it. Nothing's going to stop her. So, so anyway, she's then going to make that, that hike up the mountain. And I, I won't say anything about what happens there in terms of to her or, or, or anything else. Simply that one reason why the film is, is quite effective on that level or that elevated level is the natural plausibility of it, that, that if you were to take a hike like that, and you're an experienced hiker, as she is, still, what are the elements you're up against? So that's what I'm talking about in terms of a kind of natural conviction that she has as an actor. And as you're going along, and thank goodness I was sitting in a warm theater watching it, but as, as you're going along on this, I mean, one film critic made me laugh. She said, this film critic was writing about the film, gave it a, a strong review, but in, in, her, in her review, she said, you know, yeah, I'm all for hiking, so long as it's like level ground on a warm day, you know? <laughs> but if you're hiking up a mountain on a really cold day and it starts to snow and the wind blows and all that, 
once you're up there, again, I'm not sure I'd want to watch this film again even because it's almost uncomfortable at times as to the conditions that she's working in and presumably that, that the film crew was going through as well. So it's that kind of, uh, you know, personal adventure story where as I'm watching them, just I wanted to like pull my coat around me even more tightly. It really works at that level. What didn't work for me in the film, and again, I won't spoil anything whatsoever, but in terms of her reasons for making that climb and what happens as she makes it, as it goes along and becomes more and more perilous, the film has a, some flashbacks to her earlier life, to explanatory material, as in, well, why she would make that hike on that particular day and things that she's endured and survived in her own personal life and, and so on. Enough of that is implicit in the material that I didn't feel the need to have flashbacks. And it almost ruined the film for me at that point. When you're totally immersed in that snowy environment, you really don't particularly, at least this viewer, I don't particularly want a flashback to earlier happier days, if you will, to something else, you know, down at ground level. It snaps me out of things. I was much happier when we could just take on faith from her occasional verbal reminders of why she was doing it and what happened to her in life. Well, I don't think we need that literal-minded flashback. Ah, now we'll show the viewer to illustrate what, what she has described. And not that it ruins the film, but for me, it, it spoils it a bit. Speaking of spoilers, it, it really is a bit of a hindrance for me as a viewer to be pulled out of the immediacy of being up on that on that you know snowy mountain like that. But that's my only major reservation about it. As you're watching it, as I keep saying, it has this sort of visceral power to it. It really does hold you as you're watching it. So, you know, on balance, I would recommend it, knowing that it's not an easy film to watch. I mean, you really feel like you're on that, that snowy climb. But for that very reason, you know, I got to admire the gumption, the, the courage of the filmmakers to take us up on that mountain. It's on my list of things I wanted to see anyway, because I love Naomi Watts. I always do find those kinds of movies kind of hard to watch because, you know, I'm cringing, thinking, you know, it's me on top of that mountain. I'm going to fall off the mountain. I think that's actually why people go to watch it, because of, of that sort of innate fear we have of being in that kind of danger. Was it well attended at the Charles? Did people like it? There was a fairly good crowd in terms of the, whether people liked it or not. It, it held the audience's interest. But, you know, it's the I mean, I like the film, but but it, 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 in some ways, you know, it, it is like really bracing to watch it. You know, I wasn't going to applaud at the end maybe because I want to put my gloves on and you know, get, get warm again. So I know it's kind of hard to gauge audience response that way. But what I can say very securely is it has had positive reviews. It's critically, it's well thought of. And, and there was a bit of an audience there for it. So it seems, and, and she's enough of a box office draw that it seems to me it's a film that will be getting some attention. Let's put it that way. Well, having come back this past weekend from the French Film Festival in Richmond, I want to say that first of all, they did a lot of things to make it COVID friendly. Everybody had to show proof of vaccination. You had to wear a N95 mask. They roped off every other row. They have change the ventilation in the bird theater so that it is, you know, recycling the air very quickly. So all these things, all these protocols in place to make everybody feel better about going to the movies and no concessions, no food, no drink. Very, very different way of, of going to the movies, as you can imagine. And there must be this trend these days for a real appetite for true stories, because most of the stuff we watch were based on true stories. So my top picks are all based on true stories. The first being Spread Your Wings, which is about a father-son duo who are helping geese migrate by guiding them with an ultralight. And what I have to tell you about that is please see this in the theater because it is so sweeping. 
and the scenes are uh, just amazing, the scenes that they get, with, and it has to be with drones and all kinds of fancy photography, because what you get to see is just staggering, just an amazing, amazing movie. That should really be also a big family-friendly movie that everybody will enjoy seeing. The second one was a movie called The Vinland Club, based on, again, a true story about a school in Canada and this one educator who has a particular interest in Leif Erikson and the Vikings and how, you know, he believes maybe they had come through that very town where he is teaching and, you know, with some archaeology, maybe they could dig up some artifacts. What it succeeds at wonderfully is being like a French or a Canadian dead poet society. It's all about the educator that makes a difference. Great, great movie. And the final one is a movie called The Specials with Vincent Cassell about two men who work with autistic children and adolescents, helping them kind of get their feet under them and, and succeed. All three highly recommended and based on true stories. So very worthwhile. But that does bring us to the end of our episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.